Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 406. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 406 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer-engineer mixer Joe Carroll, who's worked with Walt Disney, Birdland Jazz Club, Linda Lavin, George Jones, and many others. And we were introduced by friend of the show and former WCA guest Kevin Ward. So thanks for that, Kevin. Really appreciate it. And we have a great conversation for you. So very much looking forward to Joe being on the show today. Joe Carroll coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about one mic recording. This past week, I had a great experience. I was fortunate to be invited by producer-engineer John Cunaberti, former WCA guest, friend of the show, to come and engineer a one-mic recording session with him out at a barn in Sonoma, California. And for those of you that aren't aware of John's one-mic series, it's a brilliant series where he takes artists into interesting spaces. Sometimes it's a studio, sometimes it's a remote location, and he will record them typically on an AEA R88 stereo ribbon mic. There's no mixing. I mean, it's really, the balances are set as a result of placement of the musicians, uh, lots of measuring, lots of listening and adjusting. And the band, you know, comes in and they get to listen to the, the recording and they help in the process of determining the balance. And so when you're done, you have a complete recording and it's an amazing thing to be a part of, to witness, to experience, and starts to really shift your thinking a bit, especially in the days that we live in now where the onus a lot of the time in the studio for recording music is on the engineer, the person running the Pro Tools rig to Pro Tools together or edit together takes and, and parts that aren't working. In this case, this really puts it on the musician to have a complete take. Because what's really extra special about John's One Mic series is that, you know, you're listening to a complete take from top to bottom, but he also has a videographer do a single shot video of the whole thing. So it's really a performance in every sense of the word. It's, it's a really amazing thing to, to witness. And you can go to YouTube and check out his One Mic series from his past recordings. And I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. John and I met up ahead of time and we did a dry run where he came over to my house and we hooked all the gear up, tested all the connections, made sure everything was what we thought it was, wrote everything down. And then he took off and I immediately packed it all up and categorized, you know, box one, box two, box three, so that the day that we actually left for Sonoma, we could uh, know for a fact that we had everything that we had set up on the dry run. So we uh, left early in the morning on Wednesday morning of this past week and drove up to Sonoma to this barn out on this property. Beautiful barn, massive barn at that, solar power on the top and just like 
classic looking place in, in so many ways. Great for video, uh, for sure. Great for taking pictures as well, which I took a few. And we set up a, a, a control room in one end of the barn that was kind of isolated. So, and I use the term isolated loosely from the rest of the barn. And then out in the main part of the barn, the musicians set up and we recorded two different acts and took, you know, the entire day. Uh, I didn't get home until close to 10 p.m. that night because once, you know, all the recording was done and takes determined, you know, then we have to pack it all up. And then we drove back to John's house, loaded my car up. I came back home and unpacked to give you a sense of, you know, like how much movement is going on in a situation like that. On my Fitbit, I got like almost 20,000 steps that day, whereas a typical day I would probably get without purposely walking like five to 6,000. So it was a, an, uh, an action-packed day, a lot of fun. And what was really fascinating was uh, for me, and I know John's gonna hear this later and he's probably listening to this in his, in his car. I'll, I'll say this, John really knows how to talk to musicians. And it was interesting to me to see how he really gets results out of people in such a, a positive way. You know, being direct, but not rude. You know, I, it's hard to explain. You got it. You just got to see it in action. And it's, uh, it was a great learning experience for me. Always, always fascinating for me to see how other people work in their, in their situations. And, you know, John was, you know, definitely in his element with this. So watching him do his thing and the process of balancing and, you know, trying to place guitar amps in the right spot so they're not too loud and overpowering the vocal and where to place the drums, just really super cool. So like I said, a link will be in the show notes. You could check out the One Mic series for yourself. They're great to watch, great to listen to. And I would encourage all of you to try a little bit of that type of recording on your own. It takes a band that knows how to perform for sure. It's a great exercise on so many different levels and the outcome can be pretty amazing, I gotta say. So, so it really just simplifies the whole recording process. Yet at the same time, it does take a lot of thought in setting it up. It's not just, you know, hey, throw up a mic and start recording. You have to really think it through and you have to, you have to really listen. It forces the musicians to really listen to themselves. And we had some in-ear monitors for one set of musicians, the second band that we worked with. And the first band we worked with, they didn't use in-ear monitors at all. Uh, because they didn't have a drummer. It was only upright bass, acoustic guitar, and pedal steel. So, you know, those that are monitoring over over headphones or in-ear monitors in this case, they're listening to exactly what we're listening to in the control room. So they can hear how their position and dynamics really affects the outcome of the recording. But that's it, yeah. One mic recording, really fun gig to do. And uh, just shout out to John, who really gave me a great opportunity to come and hang with him and, and do his special thing that he presents to the world. So I will put the link in the show notes, as I've said a, a couple times here already. Check it out. It's really super cool and a great way to record. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, 
It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Joe Carroll here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. I feel like I know you because I've been watching you on on social media and YouTube yeah. and watching the, the various things that you do. And then our mutual friend, Kevin Ward, said to me one day, he said, hey, in Kevin's kind of Southern, Southern drawl, yeah. you know Joe Carroll? I said, no, I don't, but I, I've been thinking about interviewing him. And uh, he said, oh, let me introduce you. Great. Well, thank you, Kevin. Yeah. So I always like to talk shop. If you follow me online, you know this. I'm never at a loss for words. I, <laughs> you just you open up a subject and I'm just going to go. <laughs> yep. Well, I'll squeeze my questions in there in, in between your answers. <laughs> there you go. So you're talking to us from Branson, Missouri, right? Correct. I have recently been doing a lot of work over here at Mansion Sound. Mm-hmm. That's the glorious room you see around me. It's the uh, biggest SSL duality in the world and just uh, biggest Genelec Atmos system, on and on and on. It's pretty pretty crazy. Kind of fun to, to mix on an analog desk again, you know, after having been primarily in the box for so many years. Kind of fun. Normally, where I see you and associate, associate you with is Treasure Isle Studios, which is in Berry Hill in Nashville. 
Right. Yep. Yep. I used to mix there too. I had there. There's an A and a B room there at Treasure Isle, and I, the B room was my everyday mix home. And then about I'm going to say. Not quite two years ago, I started having a lot of parental guilt in this career. You know, if you're very successful, you're just you're you're always in the chair. Yeah. So I was never home around my my son. So I, I built a really nice mix room with just a couple booths off the side of my home. So I've been doing my mixing primarily, my mixing there at home, doing my, most of my tracking down at Treasure Isle. But you know, I go to other rooms too. It, Treasure Isle isn't you know a must. It's just where I've been a lot over the last, I'm going to say almost five years now, my relationship with that room. And now I'm about a month into this relationship over here. So you'll see my smiling face over here a lot more as well. So you're not, you're not an owner at Treasure Isle. No, a lot of the gear is mine, but I don't own the building. No, I can't quite afford that. You know, I'm in the music business (laughs) (laughs) property in Berry Hill that, uh, woo. Yeah. Yeah. Branson, Missouri is not a place I associate with a big studio like is behind you. So that's a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah. How did you get this relationship here? And and what what's the tie in there? Is there a, a childhood thing? Sure. No, I, I had never even been to Branson, Missouri. My mom has tried to get me to go for years because hmm. she loves the, it, it's a tourist heavy area. They have millions. Uh, I think it was like 9 million last year in tourism. It's, wow. uh, you know, theme parks and aquariums and museums and just theaters and blah, blah, blah. But I'd never even been here. And then I got a call out of the blue. I don't really remember how long ago, maybe three months ago. And I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag. They're starting an animated film division, kind of like Disney would have Pixar. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start doing a lot of the recording for the music for their pictures. And actually, we're going to mix the audio for their first short here in just a couple weeks in Atmos. So they were looking for somebody that had a heavy, because there's more to it than that. There's, I can't really say some of the other stuff because I, you know, it's not really been announced to the public yet as some of the other things this company's going to be up to. But they wanted somebody that was really experienced in some of the like orchestral work mm. and maybe even, even some Broadway type stuff. And I had just finished the Walt Disney Princess tour where we recorded it and mixed it all and... I think that kind of sealed the deal, you know, <laughs> so that when he heard the overture that I did for that piece, it was like, come on, let's go. Let's, let's write you a check. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's always the, you know, that's kind of that soft spot to your heart. <laughs> yeah. If you can handle Disney, then you could probably right. be qualified enough to do what we want you to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's how that came about. So, you know, I got an apartment here mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and I'm going to be doing a lot of commuting back and forth and trying to get their picture division off the ground and some other things. But in the meantime, I've taken a lot of my personal mix work that's come into me as an independent, like it's always been, and mixing it on the desk here. And I just finished some Linda Lavin, some Jane Monheit, some jazz stuff where I could really, the outside the box thing was really working. You know yeah. what I mean? Using some great old tube preamps and Bricastis and just the hands-on. I don't know. It's, it's been pretty fun. I got I to gotta admit. I bet. Well, let's let's go back to the beginning a bit. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern Illinois. You could probably tell by my accent. You're like, Illinois, holy cow. But the Southern part of Illinois, my county touched Kentucky and Indiana. Mm. My town was actually farther south than Louisville, Kentucky even is. So we got a little bit of that Southern redneck in us down there. <laughs> down there. But it's a very rural, an incredible place to grow up. BB guns, four-wheelers, motorcycles, open fields. 
small school systems, just so many great things about growing up there. But as you can imagine, it's not necessarily a place to make a living in the in the music business. Yeah. So in your childhood, was there anything that you can look back on and say, oh yeah, I did this and I did this and I did this and that attributed to where I'm at now? Oh, absolutely. I, I've always been just insanely crazy about music. I mean, it was always playing. I, I had a little turntable from a very young age and I would always asking for LPs and 45s, you know, of yeah. whatever was current on the radio. I got a drum set, my first drum set when I was like seven. I started taking acoustic guitar lessons when I think I was in fifth grade or fourth grade, maybe. So it's, you know, always been super musical. As far as on the sound side, I even remember one of my favorite records when I was, I guess I would have been eight or nine, it was Cheap Trick Live at Budokan. And the snare drum sound on that. I, I, I even remember at eight or nine years old thinking, boy, that, ain't, that, isn't, what mine, <laughs> that isn't what mine sounds like, you know, because I, I had a little snare drum. It's like, why, why can't mine sound like that? So I think it was, it was always in there. I, I really believe that. Yeah. Well, you probably weren't hitting as hard as Bunny Carlos. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There's probably a lot, a lot of reasons that my snare drum didn't sound <laughs> like his. Yeah. So... Were you in school band at all? I was. In my hometown, we started, I'm trying to think, I think it was fifth grade is when they started giving you one or two lessons a week with the band teacher mm-hmm. on whatever instrument you chose. I chose drum, so it was just a snare drum at the time. And then in sixth grade is when you started marching band and doing the school events and various things. And man, I was a runty little kid, man. I got to tell you, I was always an undersized little fella. So on on marching band, we cycled between carrying the snare drums, carrying the cymbals, carrying the the bass drum, you know, the various things. And if parade day landed on, and I was the bass drum guy, <laughs> man, I was, my, my back was an, was an ache. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. 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 But it was, I mean, it was a good time. I wouldn't change any of that. You know, honestly, learning to read, I attribute to a lot of things that I'm able to pull off in the studio now on orchestral sessions. Mm. If I would have never learned to read, that would be more of a challenge. That's interesting. Did you, do you feel like, I mean, I was also in the percussion section in public school, played in marching band, played on the snare drum line, but- Mm -hmm. Over time, like I just didn't maintain, I was never really good at theory beyond reading rhythmical notes. And then of course, right. the further I got out into the world and, and got older, a lot of that dropped away because I just wasn't using it. How did it progress for you? Very similar. When I got out of school, I pretty much gave it up except for reading drum music. I was very serious about drumming. Mm. That was my number one be, I wanted to be Jeff Picaro. I mean, seriously, I wanted to be mm. a studio drummer. So I would buy different books and read with them. So I kept my reading up some, but it was, like you said, it was snare drum, bass drum, hi-hat. You know, it wasn't what we do on an orchestra date, but note value is note value, right? Yeah, true. I mean, a quarter note is a quarter note, a dot is a dot, just all these things. So on orchestra days, that comes in really really handy. Even if I can't quickly glance and say, okay, the the viola is playing a D right there. I don't need that. I just need to be able to follow the score and sometimes hear on the producer's behalf that may not be there because it's much more common than than people think for the arranger or the producer not even to be there on orchestra days. They've written their parts and they go to a different studio to do vocals or or whatever the case may be. And you're kind of the quality control person. Mm -hmm. So if you can see that they cut off on beat three here and you hear that the timing is a little, you know, even if you wasn't reading, you can probably hear that kind of stuff. But 
I think it's handy if you're going to be in the orchestral world to be able to read. I don't think it's a must. I really don't. But I think if anybody that really wants to get into that, I don't think it's a bad idea. I really don't. I think your career will go a little, maybe a little further because you'll be taken a little more serious, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't think you have to be an ace. You don't have to be like the players are. The players are in- insane. Oh, yeah. They read it better than they can read the morning paper. And that's not what I do. You know, I mean, I do a, a handful of orchestra dates a month. They do that every day for hours. But I, I do encourage young guys to, to learn how to read. Why not? Why not know as much as we can, you know, yeah. about this this field? Well, let's come back to that because I want to ask mm-hmm. you, how did recording come on your radar? I mean, you, you know, we talked about Bunny Carlos and, and the Budokan record, but yeah. Ultimately, like, when did you really start to become aware of the possibilities of recording? That's a great question. I wanted to be Jeff Beccaro. Back in the 80s, in, when I was in, in school, wanting to, you know, knowing the way those drums sounded, wh- the way mine sounded, knowing there was magic, just I was always drawn to the studio, but I thought I was going to be on that side of the glass. Yeah. So I pursued that pretty hard. I, I mean, I worked drums really, really hard and bought like Mix Magazine, EQ Magazine. I bought my own like Mackie 1604 and the Elisa's 3630, all the stuff all of us remember, Mm -hmm. uh, Midi-Verb or Micro-Verb, I don't even remember which one, and got some calls and believe it or not, in rural Southern Illinois to do some studio work for bands that I was in and one or two independent things that just called me because I was the big fish in a very small pond of drummers. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying it's very rural, so you know, it wasn't hard to to be the guy. Evansville, Indiana was it's probably the biggest city nearby. It's about an hour away, if that tells anybody anything. But all that to say, you know, got my experiences in the, in the studio and was just in love with it. I didn't want to leave. Like when the drums were done, because a lot of times we get our stuff in just a couple takes, and then they start refining and adding more layers of acoustic and electric and doing their vocals. I didn't want to leave. They couldn't hardly kick me out of the control room. I wanted to be in there where the VU meters and the blinking lights were. So it was fascinating to me right from the beginning. So that's when I started getting the Mackie and all that stuff that I was telling you about. And I, and I found a way to find a uh, used ADAT so I could record myself in my bedroom, you okay. know, playing my drums. I mean, that that was the basis for all of it. So I knew just enough to be dangerous. You know what I mean? I wasn't good at any of it. I just had a lot of head knowledge from reading all those magazines, but no real practical knowledge, if that makes any sense. So this is like 92 to 94-ish? Yeah, right around 91, okay. I think, because I remember, specifically remember the record, uh, Richard Marks' Rush Street. Mm. If anybody remembers that, it had Jeff Picaro, Terry Bazio, even Tommy Lee from Motley Crue did a guest appearance. Um, wow. John Moffat, just just really, really great drummers. Yeah, And I studied that record over and over and over and played to it. I wanted to be them. And so that, it was 1991 was when I started really taking the pursuit of studio drumming hardcore. Right. But I didn't know how I was going to make it work. Right. You know, I, I was in rural Southern Illinois. I just knew that's what I wanted and felt like probably naive, but you know, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. It was just like, this is what I, I feel like I'm meant to do. So I, I got to pour myself into it, even though it doesn't seem like there's an outlet for it yet. I've just got to do this. What I find super interesting about that story is that here you are as a drummer, but you're buying Mix Magazine. And so you're aware of the fact that modular digital multitracks are kind of the new up and coming inexpensive right. way to record in that yeah. time frame in Mackie boards. And as you said, the the Alesis compressor and those other things. So wh- where did you take it from there? Well, 
playing drums in clubs, playing drums in church, practicing nonstop, recording my, you know, self. When some of the early software came out, buying it and toying with it in my little... And I got to tell you, I, I don't come from any form of money whatsoever. And I didn't have money, you know, in my early 20s. I was working in a very low paying job. So it took every bit of club money that I could go out and earn playing drums to buy that Mackie and to buy that. You know what I mean? Like oh, it, yeah. was, it was a struggle, but I got it and fell in love with it. And then, like I said, my first experiences in the studio, I, I just knew the studio was where I wanted to be. What I didn't realize is that the first opportunity that came along to actually be like full-time and not a hobbyist, but a part-time guy where you're in this club on Friday night, you're in this club on Saturday night, you know, maybe on Wednesday nights you're out in the interstate, but then you've got your normal day job too, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. was on this side of the glass. And quickly I discovered that every bit of passion I had out there for drums transferred to the stuff behind me like instantly. Like mm. I, I was like, it's not that I forgot about drums. I didn't, I, I kept playing them, but this was the door that was open and the passion for compressors and equalizers and, and mixing and stuff just became, I mean, every every bit of passion I had for drums was just transferred. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I was on fire for this stuff. It just eat, sleep, drink it. <laughs> I always ask this question of people who come to this point in their life because I experienced it myself of a bit of identity crisis because part of you is in that drum chair, but another part of you really wants to be behind that board in that chair. So was there ever an internal struggle for you? Yeah, it's pro- probably more than I remember now because it's been so many years ago because I was such an avid drumming fan and, and just played so many hours a week that I'm sure there was, but mm. I, I got to tell you that I don't hardly remember that now, <laughs> in all honesty, you know what I mean? Because gosh, I was blessed. I was so lucky. My first professional full-time experience was actually because I was in Southern Illinois. You're like, what? How in the world would that happen? You're in a town where the, the, the entire county is like maybe 10,000 people or something like that. But there was a world-class studio being built in a town called West Frankfort, Illinois, it, it really Thompsonville, just a little bitty rural towns mm. that's tied into a worldwide television network. And they built a massive facility, but it wasn't done yet. So they needed somebody there to be learning the craft for when the studio was open. And they wanted this person to assist Bobby Bradley, which was the Nashville engineer that that network and those producers had really kind of decided was their guy. And they'd been working with him for years down in Nashville. Mm. So they asked me to take a job as kind of his assistant, basically. And so I I did. And anybody that knows anything about Nashville, the Bradley name there is royalty. You know, Mm. Owen Bradley was his uncle. So he started working at 17 years old under Owen Bradley, which again, you know, Chad Atkins and Owen Bradley started everything we know as the Nashville recording system. Music Row is Music Row is Music Row because Owen built his studio right there. Wow. You know, and then Chet built his studio right there. And then because they were doing all the major records, all the suppliers, if you sold tape, if you wrote songs and wanted to pitch songs, I mean, whatever you wanted to be, you wanted to be close to their facilities. So that's how Music Row became Music Row. But I was lucky enough to walk into Owen Bradley, Owen had just passed away, unfortunately, so I never got to meet him. But I got to start working with his nephew, who had been in the, it was like a 30-year veteran at that time, coming up under his uncle, seeing all these old-school recording techniques. It's not not fix it in the mix, like do it right. You know what I mean? With all the best gear. Like So I'm 
I'm this green kid that goes from his bedroom on a Mackie with a, an Alesis blackface ADAT and a 3630 and things like that. I'm walking into studios with more Neumanns than I can count that were yeah. Owen Bradley's personal. They'd been probably used on, I mean, who hadn't they been used on? He, he did half of the records we grew up with. Wow. Patsy Klein and Loretta Lynn, all, all the way up through Conway Twitty and stuff. So I walked right into that and working full time. Huh. So I was in the studio so much back then that I didn't have time to miss drums. I remember like there would be nights we would work really, really late, right? And I wouldn't have time to drive home. I was just like, that's not a thing. I got to be here too early the next day or whatever. So like everybody would, if they could go to their home, they did. Or sometimes we'd all crash on couches and basements and various things. I remember going into the drum booth and playing for 30 minutes before I would go to bed, you know, lock the door, you know, shut the doors. They couldn't, you wouldn't keep them awake because it was great studios. The isolation was so great. You could go in there and pound away, you know? So I was probably still easing out of the transition as, as a drum, <laughs> as a drummer, but I didn't have much time to, for sympathy about drums because I got in the hot seat fast. You learned rather rapidly in that kind of a situation, I would assume. Oh boy. Oh boy, do you? Yeah. I, I was really blessed. Bobby, Bobby was a great mentor because he knew I was green. And the only reason I got the job is because of, again, the lack of talent where I, where I lived and the enthusiasm that I had for it. It's like, okay, this kid wants us so much. Like, He's worth sewing into. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I was allowed to fail at times or to set by and observe before I was ready to actually do a, a role, letting me observe him do it. Mm. And then I could feel like, okay, now I'm ready to tape op. Because I'd never touched a tape machine. Well, I mean, ADATs, but you know what I mean? Right. When you have an orchestra or you have a room full of Nashville, very highly paid union session musicians, you can't be a bad tape operator. And I wasn't ready. So we had to do a couple sessions with Bobby doing tape op. He was his own first and second while I was, okay, you know, learn this stuff, observe this stuff. Very fortunate. How long did that last? I'm going to say three to three and a half years. And then after that, because I was there Gosh, so many hours a week. It was just insane. I was developing my own little side hustle from a Pro Tools room that I built in a spare bedroom with a 001. Remember 001? Oh, yeah. When that first came out, that took every penny I had, too, that I learned very, very fast. Like you said, when you're in the room with people that are of that level, the very first Nashville session play that I went to to check this out was, I, I told you about Jeff Picaro being my hero, right? Right. David Hungate, the bass player from all those early Toto records, you know, Roseanne and stuff. He was on the session. Oh. So I was like, oh my God. I mean, like I'm, <laughs> wow. I'm recording the bass player from Toto. I mean, this is, I walked right into, like I said, just surrounded by LA 2As and 3As and 1176s and every Neumann you can name. And all, all I'd ever done is read about that stuff. I'd never seen it. Hmm. So pretty lucky dude. <laughs> That was a three-year run there. Yeah, three, three to three and a half, I think. Yeah. Okay. And you were developing a little bit of a side hustle along the way. What was the next major transition from that point? That's a good question. So when we largely quit working in Nashville, our early stuff was in Nashville at Bradley's Barn for the most part. We may have worked at a couple of the rooms, Ocean Way or whatever, but Bradley's Barn was a lot of it. Okay. So when they got the studio done in Illinois, we started doing most all our work there. It was a great studio, don't get me wrong. And we brought 
those same session players, even the or- the string section, because it's only three, three and a half hours from Nashville. And those people, if you pay them well enough, they, you know, we'll travel, right? Yeah. So I was working even up there in, in rural Southern Illinois, I was working with elite world-class players and learning quick, you know, growing in, at an accelerated pace towards being a real professional, not just a wide-eyed kid. And about three to three and a half years into it, I knew that I had gone as far as I was ever going to go working under Bobby. Loved him and appreciated everything he'd ever done for me. Loved that studio. I mean, I was one of the builders. I was there for the wiring. I I did some of the fabric. I glued some of the uh, 703 in place when it was being built, you know. But it was it was time to move on. You know, I felt mm-hmm. like I was meant for more. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. I had a real peace about moving to Nashville, so much so that I actually bought a home. As I had a family of four at the time, and bought a home in Nashville without a job. <laughs> I was that confident. And, you know, like, of course, my family, my parents and all your friends and everything is like, dude, like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, I know this is right. Wow. So um, that's what I did. And, you know, I started working from day one. It was insane. It was insane. So I'm a little confused about the timeline of things in terms of you were working with Bobby. That was in Nashville? It started in Nashville. Okay. Then as the studio in Illinois, as they finished that facility on the television property, Uh, we started doing a lot of our work up there and would only come to Nashville for certain things. Gotcha. So I was still living in Illinois full time and just traveling here for mastering sessions and various things. Like I would be the guy, Bobby didn't attend mastering sessions. He would give it to me. I would drive down here, you know, things like that. Okay. Okay. And and set with the mastering engineer. But I knew... If I was going to achieve what I really, really in my heart felt like I was supposed to, I had to be there every day. Yeah. So took the risk, man. When you left the camp of Bobby and that studio, you're saying you went back to Nashville? I moved to Nashville full time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I bought a home, like I said, without a job. And a family of four. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's not like they fired me right away or whatever. I mean, they still needed me at that studio. So I was doing commuting on some weeks and I'd go there for three days and still work under Bobby while I was getting my my traction in Nashville. But see, one thing that really worked for me, people that's listening may be like, not understand, like, how did this happen? Like, that's just not the way it happens. But there are certain eras where things change in the industry rapidly. And if you're on the cutting edge of that change, you have an open door that would otherwise not be open. Like it just wouldn't happen. There's too many people. Cause this was right. It was kind of before the school thing, you know, it was right on the edge of that where I didn't go to school for it. You know, I'm right. all self-taught and then learned in the studio, the apprentice way schools were starting, you know, MTSU had their program full sale, but now there's, you know, now there's a gazillion of them. Right. But yeah. back then there, there wasn't. So it was a little easier maybe to get in without a college thing. But what happened for me is I was a Pro Tools expert early on. They brought a Pro Tools rig up there, the old black core system. Is that what we call them? You remember the Yeah, 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 888s? Yeah, 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 because that would have been the late 90s. Mix and Mix Plus systems. Yeah, you remember what I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. the, power, the Mac 9600, I think. 9600, yeah, I had one. <laughs> so we would transfer everything from tape into that. We were on digital tape, by the way, and then modular machines, okay. you know, like the radar and stuff like that. So we would transfer all those things using SCSI drives into Pro Tools. I would do all the vocal tuning, 
the time aligning, strip all the silence so Bobby didn't have to automate mutes and things. You know, it made it made his mixing process easier. Yeah. And then I would patch the mix up, you know, for him and stuff. So when he when he would come to Nashville, say he walked into the studio at 9 a.m. on Monday morning, everything was supposed to be ready to go. So all he had to sit down and do was push play and start thinking about the mix. But I became a Pro Tools expert. All those hours of tuning, all those hours of time aligning and all that, just knowing Pro Tools inside and out in the late 90s, you come to Nashville and you could write your own check. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because all the established guys, you know, it don't matter how big and how powerful they were and what records they were working on, they did not know Pro Tools. They just didn't. So Pro Tools was its own little specialist world. So if you knew Pro Tools, you had an in. So when, when I found favor with a handful of people that were looking for Pro Tools specialists, and I was able to fill that role, but at my core, being a musician and an engineer first, I knew Pro Tools and loved it and, and was good at it, but, but I was an actual musician that was an actual engineer too, right? Learning that old school stuff from, from Owen Bradley's methods. And so it didn't take long for me to start picking up all kinds of work aside from Pro Tools. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Can you handle this vocal session? There are going to be three vocalists on a radar. Yeah, I'm your guy. Can you do this tracking session? Yeah, I'm your... <laughs> you know, it didn't matter. Have you ever done orchestra? Yes, sir. Yeah, let's go. You know what I mean? Because I'd done all that stuff. So I never had to say, I never had to say no. I'm not going to tell you that I wasn't nervous because I was, totally was. But I had this mentality that I couldn't show it and I had to be the master of everything in their minds. And it was just up to me <laughs> to hope that it went well, right. that it went well that day. And luckily, luckily... It did to where I kept getting hired. So I, I was working like crazy right away. It was insane, man. But Pro Tools is what opened that door. And there'll be another one. There'll be another thing. I don't know when, yeah. but there'll be another door that's open to some of these young guys out there. They may be 16 and wondering, well, how am I going to break in like that guy did? He was so lucky. Who knows? I mean, four years from now, there could be something revolutionary that if you're good at it, write your own check just like I did. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. During your time with Bobby, and then once you moved back to Nashville and were getting established there, being a Pro Tools specialist, were you making a living? Were you surviving? Or was oh, it- absolutely. Oh, okay. absolutely. Better than I had ever had in my crummy little jobs in in Illinois. I, I mean, I'm, I can't. I'm not going to lie and tell you I was flush with money or anything, but I was. Yeah, I was supporting my family of four on a single income right away. Yeah, man, I, I was a I was a blessed guy. Wow. I never had to work any kind of a, from the day I started, from the day that I committed as like a full-time pro, I'm taking that job as Bobby's assistant. I have never worked a day as a Uber driver or Lowe's or a Starbucks drive-thru. I, it, so lucky. Wow. Just so lucky. That's fantastic. I, I won't take a pit stop in all of it, but can you sum up your time from... Moving back to Nashville, being the Pro Tools specialist to this point. Yeah. Maybe hit yeah. a few of the highlights. Yeah, like 20, 20 somewhat years. In the early days, getting affiliated with a studio, they didn't need to put me on staff, but they needed me there a lot for various things. Mm-hmm. And being their guy for that. Like being able to be there two days a week or seven days a week. It didn't matter. Whatever sessions they said, hey, tune the vocals for this album. It's already tracked. Somebody else is mixing it. Great. I, I never thought I was... Back then, at least, never thought I was too good to do anything. It's just said yes to everything. Whether it was as glamorous as recording an orchestra in their A room or mixing something on their big Neve or sitting in a in the Pro Tools room doing some vocal tuning on some independent artist, it was terrible. But, you know, mm-hmm. you do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, right. you just, whatever that studio manager needs, you're his guy. Yeah. Because when you're in a commercial facility like that, whether it's three days or seven days a week, you're meeting all the established Nashville players and arrangers, and producers. And honestly, right there in that studio is where I met Wayne Hahn, which is a very successful Christian. It's most, most of his successes are in Christian music, but he's a jazz producer, an arranger, and worked for Boys to Men and Celine Dion. But back then, a large part of his work was in Christian music. And he met me there, you know, and I always try to be happy, always try to be positive, and want people to want you in their room mm-hmm. and attract a thing or two for him. And that was the open door. And then when he had a record come due that he was kind of looking for a different thing, he asked the studio manager. They they were just shooting the breeze. He was like, I'm kind of wanting to split this record up between two or three different mixers and kind of just go for a new thing, you know? And he's like, who are you into right now? He said, well, I, I'm into that Joe guy. Like, he just, he's doing most of my mixing right now. And so Wayne hired me to do two songs from this album. And Luckily for me, I mean, it was luck. One of them was the very first single and it charted and went up to number two. And Wayne and the artist loved the mix. And that established a relationship that I still have to this day. Mm. I mean, I just mixed a, a jazz record for the almighty Jane Monheit. If anybody's in the jazz world, you know that. So that goes back to 15, 16 years ago, probably mixing that record for Wayne. I mean, people you meet early on, in commercial facilities, you don't know what role they're going to play in your life later. So, some of them are never meant to last more than that season, but there are others that will be with you for maybe for your entire career. 
Let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about the relationships that one forms over time. What is your philosophy or point of view about how you handle yourself and how you interact with people, knowing that you may not have the same points of view on everything outside of the studio? How do you handle that? Well, I made it a point early on, and I'm an avid believer in you never discuss questionable things. Uh, Politics, I won't do it. Do I have political beliefs? Do I vote in elections? Absolutely. Does anybody on my Instagram or anybody in the control with me know what they are? They don't. Because what, I mean, (laughs) why would I alienate 50% of my audience right out of the gate? Right. Over something stupid, you know, over tax rates or whatever. So I keep negative stuff out best I can, you know, as I've aged and gotten a lot more pressure and stress, I'm sure I've had my blow. <laughs> I've had my moments that were ugly. But in the early days, I will tell you, I was always happy. I was always positive. I was always the problem solver. I was the yes man. I would try to neutralize. I had producers tell me they would like me in the room, regardless of what I was doing, if I was just tape op or whatever. If there would be a tense moment and somebody would say something, I would have a joke for it. I could tell like, okay, everybody needs to laugh. So mm-hmm. just boom, throw it out there. You know what I mean? Just throw out this joke. Everybody laughs and all of a sudden like life's a little better. I can't stress enough. Try to be sunshine. Want them to be in your room. Want them to want you in there. And if you're a, a dark, negative dude, you're not going to, it's not going to happen. Even little things like dress for me. I always tried to be fairly neutral Mm. but nice. You know what I mean? I I didn't want to overdress. I didn't want to underdress. I didn't want to wear ratty jeans or a t-shirt with coffee stains or put colored stripes in my hair. Or I'm not, this isn't me saying any of that stuff is wrong. Mm -hmm. This was a personal decision for me about piercings and all this kind of stuff because I wanted to fit into any room that I was in. Like I didn't know from day to day, if you're in a commercial facility, you don't know if you're going to be in the room with a rock band you're going to be in the room with a rapper. You're going to be in the room with the most conservative gospel artist in the country and anything in between. So if you're if you're just kind of that happy, average-looking dude, if that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, you're welcome into the rooms because you're not scary in any way. It's like, well, look at that guy. Who does he think he is dressed that fancy? Or look at that guy. Like, what a ratty. That's nasty. You know, like, give us the other intern. So I made decisions early on to be professional, but also very neutral, but, yeah. but happy. And also, you know, know when not to speak. Early on, I, I got called out on having an opinion in Bobby's control room. <laughs> Man, you're a tape operator. Shut up. There's a producer there. There's a room full of mega superstar session musicians. And there's an engineer that's got 30 years of experience. It doesn't matter how good I think I am. Mm. My job is to push the red button when they say, go, let's punch bar three and four right here. It's not my opinion to tell him that he's sharp or he's flat or that he's shut up. (laughs) You know what I mean? People, when they know more than you, a lot of us, when we're young, we want people to know what we know, right? We can't Mm -hmm. wait for them to know how smart we are. And I found that those kids, they don't go very far. People don't want them in the room. They're always talking about what they've done, 
what they're going to do, what they know. Can't wait to push the established 30-year veteran out of the way so they can show them, oh, well, there's a shortcut for that. Shut up. Like, just just hush. <laughs> just be be the happy kid and absorb what they know. There's so much knowledge in these control rooms, you know, that I've been fortunate enough to be in in my career. Learn what they know and don't try to... I got called out on that really early, and I'm glad I did before yeah. it harmed me doing it in the wrong room. <laughs> There's kind of a joy in in also focusing on as the engineer to the producer, making sure you have their back from a technical perspective and a sonic perspective and just completely absolutely. absorbing yourself in that role. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if there is something to say, say it privately. There's a lot of things that can be said that need to be said to that engineer in private. Yeah. Like, I'll do this for my assistants too. If we do a take and we realize, uh-oh, like they didn't have that one track in record and it was, there were supposed to be three guys playing, whatever, or that guy's already in the lounge and we just blew over something before Pro Tools, before we just hit undo or something. Yeah, yeah like you said, have each other's back. No, no finger pointing. Yeah. But when you're, when you're in your early stage, I really believe that you know, when you're a tape up, when you're a second, it's your job to make that lead engineer look great. Humility. Make him look great, not you. You're going to look great just because you're part of his team, and the day went amazing, right? Yeah. So you're going to look great. If you're an assistant assistant, not even up to tape op yet, I mean, your setup should be immaculate. You're going to get your chance. But when you're the lead engineer, it's the same thing. You make that producer look incredible. Many times in quiet conversations where the musicians can't hear, when you develop enough of a relationship with the producer, you can whisper to him, but you don't want the artist to hear it because he may say, it's fine, leave it alone. Or you idiot, that's supposed to be this chord. You know, <laughs> you're just not smart enough to understand that that note is in that chord. You know, or, oh, okay, my bad. So, so some of that stuff can be subtle. Like you said, you have each other's back, but you're not calling attention to it to where you're trying to make yourself look good. Look at me. Look what I caught. Look at this error that I. That doesn't matter. You're not going to help yourself being that guy. Right. When you're on this side of the glass or our side of the glass, it's a team sport. It's a. Oh, absolutely. And there is definitely, I mean, if we're going to use sports analogies, there is definitely the quarterback, and mm -hmm. I'm not a sports person enough to <laughs> name all the positions, but knowing enough that the producer is essentially the quarterback, and if you have their back, then it's going to be an easier ride. Uh, if, if you're on a tracking date and you're, you're thrown into a situation with a new engineer and the day goes great, all of a sudden, you know what? He's on your call list. Yeah. You know what I mean? So as a, as a lead engineer that goes around different rooms, you know, whether it's Ocean Way or wherever... Some of these rooms have a staff of guys like Oceanway, and I've had good assistants and I've had bad. And you know what? Being the good team player leads to work because I know when I get booked there who I'm going to ask for. And I know what names I'm going to say, no, thank you. Is guy X available or, or is guy Z available? Because I don't want that guy. I had a bad experience last time. So whether it was cocky attitude or whether it was technically he was inferior, even obnoxious things like eating potato chips in the control room or whatever. You yeah. know, like like I remember that stuff and don't want to be in the room with them. I shouldn't have to, studio etiquette should be so common sense to me that I don't want to have to tell that guy some of that kind of stuff. So it'll make him not get the call with me anymore. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of stuff for your listeners. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Just always be the a bright spot in the room. Never put yourself in a situation where there's something negative that people can point to, whether it's political debates all the way to just something as tacky as chewing gum loudly. Yeah. I know guys that that's been a detriment to guys, just chewing gum 
I, I mean, I, I swear, like, like in commercial facilities, you're going to work with so many different people that have so many different hangups or whatever, and you don't want to offend any of them and, and get on their don't call list. You want every opportunity you can get because you don't know which one of them will end up being a guy that, you know what? Uh, I just got my 1099 from that guy this year. I made 30 grand off that one producer. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, well, don't eat potato chips in his control room then. Like, just don't, just yeah. don't do it. Do it in the lounge. That's you know? a great transition. I'd, I'd love to talk to you a bit about overall business mindset of, of mm-hmm. whether you're a studio owner or, or a freelancer, what has been the things that you have done that have proven successful to you in terms of strategy with how you handle your money to where you book yourself, when you book yourself? Man, you know... I think for me personally, I, I think it's my the passion. Like I'm just ate up with this stuff, and I think everybody knows it. You, you know what I mean? So they they know I'm always going to do my best. Like because I have been so lucky to be involved in so many different types of recording sessions very often and mix so many genres and things that I, I can pretty much handle anything that anybody throws at me and handle it pretty calm. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. not not lose control and and go downhill and get moody and stuff because there's some kind of a technical problem. Like, see it through. But even on the mixing side, like, I give all my mixes my all. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And I, and, I, and I work them until I think they're done. I don't turn in, you know, say, how fast can I get this song done? You know, and I know they're going to, that guy's going to have comments anyway, so let's just kind of rough it in. And, and until it sounds like a record to me, I don't want to go out my door. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't want it out the door. So when people get version number one and they're like, Holy crap, this is really good. Like maybe I don't have any comments whatsoever. And I can't tell you how many records I mix where there's I just did a five song EP, just did it. Went to mastering with not one change. That's not bragging on my skills as much as I think it's bragging on my mentality. Nail it. Put in the time and put in the, whether that song takes you 3 hours or whether it takes 9, put in the time to make it awesome. And then you're going to get the call next time too. Like that I I think attention to detail has been a a biggie for me. Mm. Number one. Number two, man, I think work ethic. I mean, I just, I got too much work ethic. I'm a workaholic. I, I, I'll i do whatever I have to do to meet people's expectations and deadlines. Missing deadlines in this business is a big deal. Yeah. It, it's one thing if it's Joe Blow, independent artist that just wants it back, physical product in time for a show at a club, you know, because that's the way it was years ago, right? Now with streaming, it's a little different, but sometimes sometimes that still happens. They want it to be streaming by a certain date or whatever. But especially when you get into label world, those are non-negotiable. If it has to be turned in on September 15th, dude, it doesn't matter how many hours you have to stay awake in a row. If, you, if you've overcommitted yourself and out of your own foolishness, which is me very often, Saturdays and Sundays, I mean, it doesn't matter. You don't miss a deadline. Right. That is the red check of red checks. You know, it's like, this had to be in mastering on the September 15th. Joe Carroll did not get it to me on September 15th. Who are they going to call next time? Not Joe Carroll. Not Joe Carroll, uh, right. Not Joe Carroll. (laughs) Give me that new kid that's, you know, going to replace him because that kid's got work ethic. So I think work ethic, attention to detail. And man, I got to tell you, I think cheerful, happy demeanor and being likable is, is a huge, huge part of it. Hmm. I love people. I love being in the room with people. I like laughing. I like everyone to have a good time. I like young artists to feel like they're having the best day of their life ever because they don't do this every day. Sometimes even people that's three or four records in are super intimidated by 
being in the control room with uh, Brent Mason on guitar, right? Jeff King on guitar, or, or even people like me in the control room that they know is, has accomplished certain things or whatever. You, you got to make them feel like they're just, man, we're, we're all having a good time. This is fun. This should be the time of your life. We're having a blast with you. No egos. If you're in the vocal booth and you're, you seem like you're a little flat, we're in your corner, man. Like we, you know what I mean? We're not, mm-hmm. we're not making fun of you behind your back or whatever. Like we're on your team. We want this record to be great. And the greatest session musicians and the greatest engineers that work all the time get that work because they always, they just, they never cave. They never compromise their principles of, I can't tell you how many times, Dave Cleveland, great session musician, if you know that name, even on budget dates, right? Where we, hey, you got to get X songs done today on this session. And it's, they're paying limited pressing. You know, it's not great money. I mean, it's good money, but you know what he'll do if that song needs four guitar passes and it's like, ooh, we should probably just move to the next song. Dave Cleveland be like, dude, give me one more pass. I'm so, I'm so sorry. But, you know, there's no compromise. Like my part, when I leave tonight, I know I killed it. And that's the way we should be in, in this room too. If there's anything we could do better, then let's do it. Hmm. If anything that changes throughout the day, you know, just just ace everything all the time. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. I just think you just have to be a master of your domain and and just care enough to to make sure that when you leave at the end of the day, like you crushed it. It sounds like you're you're leading with when we talk about the business end of it, it sounds like you're saying that how you handle yourself as a person, how you treat other people how you act as a professional ultimately determines how good or bad the the money side of it will end up. A hundred percent to me. If they don't want to be in the room with you, you're not going to get hired very often. People that are just kind of crotchety and whatnot. One thing about doing sessions in Nashville, you learn, it's like, oh my God, all these guys are the nicest guys in the world. I don't think that's an accident. You know what I mean? I think there's a reason, a reason why those guys are in those chairs every day. People loved them. Okay, they granted, they were amazing musicians, like cream of the crop type musicians. People loved them enough to give them those opportunities and want them in the room to get them in the room day after day after day after day to where they went from like, wow, that guy's a great guitar player to being, oh my God, that guy is like world-class elite in studios every day. Anything you throw at him, and he can. They weren't that when they first moved to Nashville. No one is. Right. There's no matter how good you think you are until you're in a situation like you're in in the control rooms and the studios of a of town like Nashville every day, you can't achieve a certain level, right? Because you have to be around people that are better than you to get there. That's the way all these players, all us engineers are. If people didn't like us and get us in the room, we would never have accomplished what we accomplished. I, I'm a big believer in that. No matter how, how much raw talent we have, uh-huh. our ultimate talent is an accumulation of that raw talent and all this pile of knowledge and experience that we've stacked on top of it from being in here every day for 20 years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever the case may be. Assuming you do all the, the right things here that, that you're talking about and the money does come, how have you found it best to handle Incoming money. I mean, I'm sure you've gone through your years of overspending on gear, maybe going yeah. into debt. Do you have a way that is the Joe Carroll way of operating with money? Well, I, I got to tell you, I didn't do well with it for years. Yeah. I didn't, you know, and we wanted to be a single income household so she could be at home with the kids. And so there were some limitations there as well. But I recommend they get a good tax person. Yeah. A couple of years into it, you start getting the routine of how much money you're making, 
versus how much money you're spending on tax deductible type stuff. And you'll know when December comes around, like it's, it's common in our industry to buy gear in December, right? I mean, right. It, it, it just, some of you guys may be, what, what? Like, no, that's a thing because you know that I need to spend about four or five grand here or my taxable revenue is going to go way up. As long as it's something you can use for business, keep track of all the mileage, you know, all the parking, just all that kind of stuff. I think that's almost something as a self-employed person, you have to learn. Yeah. I just don't know. I, I don't know any other way than to go through it and have some bad experiences even. That year that the tax, you know, at the end of the year, you have your taxes done and they say, this is how much you owe the government. And you're like, oh my, you know, like, yeah, you can learn a lot from that. I mean, it's a rough, that's a rough way to learn, dude. That's a rough way to learn, but you do. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and, you know, like audio and anything we do in, in the studio, it's a skill that takes time to develop mm-hmm. working with money uh, as a freelancer because it's so tempting, you know, oh, hey, I got a thousand bucks. Well, that thousand bucks is not entirely yours to spend at the moment. Yeah. So I like to ask those questions because I like people to get to think about it. Everything you've said, I think, is super crucial. And I think, as we were talking about, when you do that, when you have that work ethic and and how you treat people and those rules about what not to talk about and you get hired over and over again, then the money will come. But what you do with that money afterwards is always a bit of a challenge for some. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's a constant learning thing. Boy, it's hard to put into words, isn't it, really? Until you experience it, it's tough. But you're right. You have to know that taxes are coming due and you have to have that in your bank account. You may not always know down to the dollar what it's going to be, but you kind of learn what your tax liabilities are at your certain income range and certain gear expenditures and mileage and all those taxable things. It's also good to pay in every quarter. If you make that quarterly payment at the end of the year, it's not as brutal. You know, if you think your tax liability at the end of the year is going to be $6,000 or whatever, if you put back $1,500 every quarter, it's a lot easier to come up with that money. But you know, the, the bonus is, is everything you've talked to us about, about how to conduct yourself in the studio. I think that that puts you in the studio so much that you don't have time to spend your money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Your family take care of that for you though. <laughs> yeah. Or reverb or, you know, eBay or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I think the money, money's always a problem, right? Oh yeah. Either you don't have enough or it's like, wait, wait a minute. You know, my tax liability is what? Because I made too much? It seems like there's always a problem with it. Luckily, I find that most of us that are in this business, we love money. Of course, everybody does. But we're not in it for the money right. at all. It's I a mean, byproduct. Like, at all. Right, right. So I think the fact that it's not our be-all, end-all, like some people are just really driven, right? Every dollar and they're watching their portfolios daily. That's not me, you know, it probably I probably should be. I'd probably be in a better position to retire in 20 years or whatever the case may be. But yeah, money money can be hard. It can be tricky. Like you said, it's just not my driving factor. And so I, I find that, I, you know, I haven't given it enough attention. And I know I've left a lot of money on the table because I've taken projects underpaid just because I wanted to do the project. Right. Yeah. It's a constant battle. But you've put yourself in a great position because of, like I said before, how you've conducted yourself and your philosophy of how to be in a session and how to get more work. Mm -hmm. And that is in itself somewhat of a problem for a lot of people. They don't know how to conduct themselves and they don't know how to keep that work flowing in. 
Mm-hmm. And it seems like based on your time in this business, you've been quite successful at keeping it moving. Yeah. I mean, I fight for time off. I mean, all summer, all summer has been seven days. If I took my glasses off, you'd see the bags under my eyes. You'd be like, holy crap. But uh, I'm I'm exhausted. You know, I go, 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 go. But I mean, I love this stuff. I just love it. And it, when you're successful and you have a great passion for it, it's hard not to work yourself to death because you want to say yes. That record calls, you know, it's, it's just a five song EP and you're like, man, I don't have time for that, but ah, oh, send it. You, you know what I mean? You yeah. just... It's hard. It's hard to say no. I was just talking about with this with one of my assistants just the other day who's going through some of the same stuff, working way too many days a week. She was on my computer doing stems uh, until one in the morning because, you know, of overcommitting herself. And, you know, I'm trying to explain to her, like, because I've heard it come out of her mouth. It's like, you want to be me in a sense. You right. know, she wants to be successful, right? And right. work a lot and have people respect her or whatever. But it's like, there's a lot of things about me that I wouldn't recommend either. <laughs> you know, my workaholic personality is really not in the best interest of somebody that wants to be also in a you know relationship and a dad and all these other things. There is a downside to working all the time in this business too. Because man, if you're successful in the music, in the production side of the, of the glass, mm-hmm. if you're successful, there will be more work than you can ever possibly do. And it's just the way it is. You got to learn when to say no and how to say no. And and I I got to be honest, man, I, I have not been good at that. I have not been good at that. Yeah, it is tough to say no to projects. It is hard. It is very, because, you, you know, there's always that little bit of you that it's like, well, what if they use that guy right there and then they love him too, right? And now he gets the next orchestra day and then maybe mm-hmm. it goes well and then he gets the one after that too. And you you've lost a client, but you got to find a comfort and a peace with yourself in order to know, okay, but I I believe in myself. I believe I'm good at what I do. Hmm. Even if some work falls away, something else will come to you. You know, there's going to always be a new client. When I say this, I'm talking to the guys that are out there watching, but I'm talking to me too, because I'm still trying to give myself that pep talk. You know, I mean, literally 25 years in, and I'm still trying to tell myself, you can say no from time to time, because I've I've failed at that. That's why any of these guys that follow me on Instagram are like, dude, is he, is he really, you know, in there that early on a Sunday? Is he really in there that late on a, on a Sunday? Is he, I am. Hey, my bank account likes it, but I can't say that my son always does. Right, right. Do better than me at, at balancing real life and work life. Be better than I am. Because I've not, I've not nailed it. <laughs> yeah, the balance aspect. It's funny because here we are in the world of audio, and you know we talk about mixing and balancing, but balancing within our own lives sometimes can be a challenge. Oh yeah, very much. My dad was a workaholic, so I come by it naturally. But in the early days, you have to say yes to everything, right? I mean, almost everything. That's part of it. So that becomes in this industry that becomes a little bit of a personality trait. You're a yes man, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's what it takes to keep getting the gigs. It's like, hey, we got this. He's like, oh, you know, you need a day off, but you're just one of three guys that's on staff at that studio, right? And somebody's going to have to do that Sunday setup. And you know, you have to be indispensable. So you're you're the one that drives in on a Sunday to do it. So you're a yes man and you get used to that. And that's hard to shake. For me, it has proven very difficult to shake. That combined with just my natural obsessive personality. I'm an obsessive personality type. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch my Instagram, you you know, there's like, dude, that guy, he's consumed, you know, and, and I am. And so because of that, I do have trouble saying no. It's just, 
Just a nonstop battle. And that can be reinforced too by others patting you on the back and going, man, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. We can always count on you being here. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to wait on, oh, you, you can't do it this week. We're, we're willing to wait on you. We're willing to so say, you know that you're booked for a month. But they're going to move their deadline, you know, if it's an independent artist, just for you because they want to work with you. And oh, yeah. so it's flattering at the same time as it is hard to say no just by nature. Yeah. So you got the flattery on top of it. And you know what you do? You find a way to work that record in, yeah. you know, and no matter what it means, Fourth of July, Labor Day, Memorial Day, it, Halloween, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time. I, I do want to thank you for being on the show. Yeah. For the audience, you got to go to joecarroll.com and that's C-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. Yep. I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody so you don't have to remember. You can just go there and click. And okay. It'll be easy. Joe, real pleasure to meet you. I've enjoyed observing you on social media and always look forward to checking out what you're doing. And I'm glad that our friend Kevin Ward could connect yeah. us. So just want to thank you. appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hopefully uh, I said something that's inspirational <laughs> to some of these young young people. That's what everybody always says. And, and the answer is always yes. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome, man. All right, man. Will you take care? All right. Will do. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Joe Carroll. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to remind you to head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips to download the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio pro. It's a PDF that I put together. It's basically uh, bits and pieces of interviews from Steve Albini, uh, Jack and Dino, Andrew Sheps, and Eric Valentine. I think you'll find it super useful. So head on over there and download that. And that's all for me today. So I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me a message as well, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.